Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I am joined... Hi, Tim McIntosh and Heidi White. Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Welcome back to the show, guys. How's it going? Thanks, Good, David. David. Doing great. So we are here uh, to discuss Macbeth, William Shakespeare's play. This is a show where it's all Shakespeare all the time. We read Shakespeare's plays one act at a time. If you have never listened to the plays of the thing before, but you are interested you are inordinately interested in Macbeth then uh, welcome to the show um, in the past we have done plays like Much Do About Nothing and Julius Caesar and Henry V and King Lear have we done anything else yet guys is that it that's the, the first run we did I, I can't think of anything else can you Heidi I think that's right I think that covers yeah. it okay. we're just getting started so we're gonna do Macbeth Othello we're gonna do The Tempest uh, some of you may be tuning in saying hey where's The Tempest and we decided to move that back a little bit because um, Andrew Kern wanted to be involved in that, but he couldn't do it right now. So we assured him that we would push push that off a little bit. So we're here to talk about Macbeth. And we will be doing that over the next five weeks. And then at the end of that, we will be answering your questions. So if you have questions, you can post those on the Close Reads Facebook group, or you can email them to us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And of course, you can also find us on Instagram at Close Reads Podcasts. So let's talk Macbeth then. Tim, I'm going to start with you because I'm not going to say you begged to be on this, but, you, <laughs> but I did. But, but I kind, did. But you kind of begged to be on, yes, to be on the did. Macbeth conversation. So um, I've got lots of questions kind of about big picture Macbeth stuff, and we will dive into Act One. Um, there's a lot of history we can talk about, and there's a number of ways we can go as with any Shakespeare conversation. But let's talk the personal side first. Yeah, I want, I want to hear why you love this play. I think you once told me that, or maybe you told the show, uh, some close reads podcast network show that Macbeth would show up on your Mount Rushmore of Shakespeare plays. Am I remembering that correctly? It, it would. That's exactly right. And so, which face on the mountainside is Macbeth? 
Oh, like from left to right. Okay, so where is where is George Washington in reference? Is he leftmost? I, um, you don't need to tell me exactly where on the mountain. I was just thinking, like, is it Thomas Jefferson? Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh, that's hard. Is it? I think it's probably. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think Grant. it's probably Jefferson because for me, like, it's Hamlet, Lear. Coriolanus, Macbeth, those are like, I love the dark plays, man. I just love the tragedies, I think. And Macbeth is maybe not as tragic as Lear, but so dark and so nefarious and bloody, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. When you talk about the difference between darkness and tragedy, do you mean the same thing? Because you said it's maybe not as tragic as Lear, but it's very dark. So that got me, that prompted a, the thought. Like, do, you, do we mean the same thing? Can, can something be less tragic, but dark or very dark, but not as tragic as something else? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, Macbeth is spooky. I mean, it's uh, genuinely yeah. weird and spooky. And when Macbeth starts um, waiting what's the what's the beautiful phrase he says i have waded in so deep that it'd be basically it'd be i've waded into blood so deep that it would take more time to wade to go forward than it would be to like wade back it's spooky um it's full of incantations from witches and nature starts kind of flying apart because macbeth has done this deed totally against nature Hmm. he will do this deed totally against nature. I'll mention one other thing because this is just bound to pop up for me. Macbeth is especially dear to me because this is the first ever lead role that I played in a Shakespeare play. Hmm. I had done bits and pieces. like I had done scene work. I had done some measure for measure scenes and a scene from Lear and this and that. But I went out for uh, a production of Macbeth and I was so... I just wanted a part. I was like, I'll take Banquo. I'll take Macduff. Um, but I Next thing you know, well. they gave you Lady, Mac- Lady Macbeth. <laughs> they gave me Lady Macbeth. <laughs> they gave me Macbeth, and I was terrified. I mean, it's just terrifying to play a lead role in a Shakespeare play. Um, but I survived, and it's, it's got a place in my heart that will never be unlodged. Hmm. Heidi, is this a uh, Mount Rushmore play for you? Yes, absolutely. I think Macbeth is a must read. It's definitely a must teach. I think uh, speaking as a teacher, this is the play that I've taught that has every single time. I I really think 100% of the time it has, this is the play that makes students Shakespeare lovers. Hmm. Um, And I- What do you you think it is, Heidi? I think that it's, I've, I've been thinking about, I'm glad you asked me that because I, in some ways I think it remains a mystery to me. Are you saying um, that's a good question? It's a good question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it, I, I think there's a number of reasons. Similar to Julius Caesar, the structure of the play is satisfying, like very satisfying the chiastic structure of it. Um, so it's, it's, it's easy to identify, you know, Macbeth begins with a battle and it ends with a battle kind of thing. Like it, there's, there's this very tight structure to it that is satisfying to read and to talk about, um, and helps 
students to identify some characteristic, some of the characteristic natures of, of how Shakespeare writes his work. Mm. Um, mm. So it kind of delves people into the world of Shakespearean structuring and writing and that kind of thing. But then on, on the other hand, the hand that I'm more interested in talking about is just the meaning of it is the threads of this with the blood and the death and the, you know, that stuff's so fun and cheery. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, but it's, it's so beautifully woven together and bottomless. You want to talk about gender issues. You want to talk about society. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about the personal and the existential. There is something in Macbeth that you, there's no way to untangle the threads, but it sure is fun to try. Hmm. Well, hopefully we're, you know, here ostensibly we're here to to make an attempt to unravel those threads yeah um so one of the things that tim you mentioned is that darkness at the kind of core of this story um and of course there is the tragedy as well um and so i've always found this that this play to be sort of like beowulf um Mm. in in, in terms of the way I feel about it, um, if you people have been listening to Close Reads from the very beginning, we did. I think we did one episode where you and Angelina tried to convince me <laughs> to like Macbeth um, because it's not a play that I'm. I, I mean, I don't dislike it. It's just not one of my the ones that are yeah. like my heart yeah. plays. To borrow the phrase that you like to use, um, yeah. it's not the play that I like. You know love i go back to all the time i mean i I go back to it because i have the responsibility to go back to it um more than i do because i'm passionate about it or it really really appeals to me and it always has this sort of in my imagination anyway there's this sort of gray hazy fog hovering over the story um which i think you know there's supposed to be much like there is in beowulf i mean it could take you know it begins with a witch's cauldron and there's haze and swamps and all that kind of stuff um so do you um uh, I guess my I guess I'm saying this because I'm curious if you think that generally speaking people feel about it the way the two of you feel about it or if they feel more about it the way I feel about it like mine I, I wouldn't I would say I respect this play but I don't love it I yeah there's some kind of fog over it that has yet to be lifted for me to where it's something that I really truly love. And I mean, there, and I don't just mean like a thematic fog that's supposed to be there, but there's something um, distant about it for me. And one of my goals as I read it this time with you guys who do love it is to try to understand why is that, why is there uh-huh. a sort of fog over it, that, that lack of deep love for it for me that's there for you. So my I guess my going back to my question I said a minute ago before I started rambling is... Do you th- where do you think most people in your experience as a teacher or as a performer or as just a lover of literature, where do you think most people fall on it? I mean, I know, is it the begrudging, not begrudging, but is there the respect versus the love or is there more of the love and respect, do you think? And I'll let you each talk, touch on that, but Tim, you go first. I think it's love and respect. And I call to evidence that Macbeth is... My hunch is top three most performed Shakespeare plays along with probably Midsummer Night's Dream just because high schools tend to love the kind of like playfulness of Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, and it's kind of got a role for everybody. There, there's no lead. You don't have to have like an extraordinarily strong lead. Uh, and 
I think probably Hamlet's probably number one just because it's generally acknowledged as his greatest work. But I think Macbeth is probably top three, if not top three, top five. And um, I think you could probably make an empirical case for this. Um, there's this, there's this rumor that we should probably talk about today. It's not a rumor. It's a, there's folklore around Macbeth. And the folklore is that you cannot, the actors and the director and the stagehands cannot say the name Macbeth on the stage Mm -hmm. while you cannot say while you're not either performing or rehearsing the play. And it's actually taken kind of seriously. And yeah, it, it sounds kind of silly, but this is kind of coming back to the point. Um, people take it seriously because if you look at the history of productions of Macbeth, the number of absolute like catastrophes surrounding the play is freaky. Like, Actors dying during, you know, actual performances and theaters catching on fire and injuries happening to, you know, different players in the play. In fact, like, we can talk about this later, but I injured myself really badly on the second, you know, like, I think it was the second weekend that we were performing. I was badly injured. Anyway, there's kind of a reason behind the folklore. There's all these injuries there's all these catastrophes and one theory about why there's so many it's not because macbeth is actually haunted though it's kind of fun to think so but part of the reason that people think that um there have been so many catastrophes associated with the production of the play is because theaters who are almost always running on shoestring budgets sometimes they will say gosh we have got to have um a great selling play because we are in really dire straits financially, what play are we going to do? Macbeth <laughs> will always bring them in. So they perform Macbeth, but they just kind of cut corners. They cut safety corners. They don't quite you know, make all of the efforts that they should to keep the sword play as tight and as safe as it can. Um, you know, like a fire starts backstage because, you know, the stagehand isn't really as, you know, well paid. It's some amateur stagehand or whatever. So, all of that is like a long explanation for why I think, yeah, I think Macbeth is actually a beloved play. And I think empirically speaking, um, you could show in the history of production, people pull out Macbeth when it's time to really draw crowds. Hmm. So have you heard about the, the, I mean, I, I don't know why I'm asking, but I assume you've heard about the, uh, the various ways of dispelling the curse of Macbeth. Oh no, I haven't heard about this. So. I've read that like you, some people would say like Merchant of Venice apparently is the lucky play if Macbeth is the unlucky play. Uh-huh. So you can recite lines from the Merchant of Venice if someone says the name Macbeth. And then I, I was reading on Wikipedia um, about how uh, there was an actor, a famous actor, who said that if the name Macbeth gets uttered, you have to leave the stage with the person who said the name. Walk around the state, walk around the theater like three times, spit <laughs> over your left shoulders, say an obscenity, and then wait to be invited back into the theater. Something like that. <laughs> so there's like all kinds of crazy stuff, or something about spinning around three times as fast as possible on the spot. Um, sometimes accompanied by spitting over a shoulder, and like the, uh, spitting apparently spitting and spinning and yelling obscenities has a lot to do 
you know, super undoing the curse, undoing the curse, which I think is very appropriate given this play. Very <laughs> yeah, appropriate. Yeah. Lots of cursing, lots of spinning, lots of um, spinning around. Um, but Heidi, do you, you talked about the idea of, you know, it's this play that you love to teach. Uh-huh. So do you think that, um, do you love to teach it? it? Well, you also talked about how it brings students to like Shakespeare. Uh-huh. So why is it, do you think that, that, that it's a play that helps students love Shakespeare? Is it these things that Tim is talking about, the mysteries behind it, all, um, all the things that cause theaters to turn to it again? Uh, or, I mean, there's also all the structural stuff you mentioned. Sure, yeah. But why I, is it that there is this connection, you think, between students I think and this play? there's a couple of different reasons for that. One is the structural stuff that I talked about. Um, I just have to comment how hilarious I think that it is that Tim's reason that the play is so beloved is because there's the curse on it. So. <laughs> no, 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 that's not it at all. That's not it at all. So I'm going to read you all a text I sent earlier to Tim McIntosh about this play. And he was saying, um, I was saying, I'm so glad we're doing Macbeth together. This will be great. And he responds, you know, that he played Macbeth, my first title role, he says. And my response is, murder, insanity, and the existential void. Classic Macintosh. <laughs> <laughs> I think, ladies and gentlemen, the, the curse as the defense of why the play is so beloved <laughs> is indeed It's more about Macintosh. him than it's about Macbeth. Is that what it is? <laughs> it's a little bit more of a commentary on Tim than it is Macbeth. <laughs> so, um, well, you're probably onto something, though. I mean, right. yes, I do think that that's true. There's, a, I, I think that the human soul does indeed resonate with the themes of this play, even in in, in contradictory the manners. The cursing and the spinning around. The spinning and the cursing, yes, <laughs> uh, in contradictory manners. I think it can. Uh, produce a response kind of like what you have, David, of just being repelled by it. But it's still a pretty strong reaction, right? If it's not someone's favorite Shakespeare play, it's usually one that they deeply dislike. Right? So, huh. and, um, and then, so these themes of ambition and inversion, there's so many inversions in Macbeth, right? Fair is foul and foul is fair. That's in the first scene. Like that's this, if you see something in the play, like womanliness in Lady Macbeth, it's going to be inverted throughout the course of the play. And it's going to become kind of a a diabolical or infernal version of itself. And that happens throughout the play. There's Hmm. these downward trajectories, these inverted and reverse trajectories in the characters and in the action of the play. And it's, um, I think we respond to that either by being like repelled by it or or by kind of being drawn in and wanting to resolve the paradoxes of that and understand it but either way we're fascinated by it and and that i think is part of the enduring nature of this particular play hmm. i like what you're saying about the inversions because i've always thought said that you know the anti-hero that people say is such a contemporary idea i mean shakespeare is full of anti-heroes and is there a better example of it than like every right. character in this play Right, exactly. There's, there, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about is, is there a hero in this play? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. is there is there a character whose goal is to, in some way, sort of counter... Become the ideal type, yeah. Yeah, or even just counter the tragedy at work in the play. I mean, it seems right. like everybody is at work towards the tragic end. 
I mean, I know that literally everybody is because otherwise you don't have a sense of conflict. But also the conflict seems to be bound up in flaw rather than, you know, things that would be, you know, you'd seen in an ideal type to borrow the phrase that you just, you just mentioned. Tim, I can't tell if there was just some static. I can't tell if you were trying to say something or if the, uh, the internet decided that it was going to speak to me aside from your... I wasn't trying to say anything, although my answer to your question would be, is there kind of like a hero? Is there someone who's kind of like trying to restore the proper order and justice? I think Macduff is that guy. And he, totally agree. Yeah. Yep. Um, he doesn't, sh- he doesn't, he's not prominent until probably halfway through the play, but he is a delightful stalwart character. And Heidi mentioned that gender is like kind of like one of these, the themes that kind of comes up pretty strongly in Macbeth. I think that how Macbeth uh, thinks of masculinity is maybe like a counterpoint to how Lady, Lady Macbeth is going to talk about, you know, femininity and masculinity. That'll just be something to kind of, that we can get into act three or four. Right. Well, before I, you know, I'd like to, dive into a couple scenes here in act one that are quite famous and worth looking into. But I wonder if we should do a little bit, at least a few minutes of, of a preparatory, I mean, more preparatory conversation. Um, and so I'm wondering, Heidi, you've introduced a couple of themes already, but I'm wondering if there's anything else that either of you want to add that people should just be prepared to be, to be noting as they read this play, things to be looking out for, um, things to be previewing, you know, just to, to keep your eyes peeled for. Is there anything else you want to add before we move into another topic? Well, I do want to point out that um, what Tim mentioned earlier about the Curse of Macbeth, I think is actually really, really important to understanding this play and unlocking this play. Out of all of the tragedies, uh, this is the play with the most supernatural elements, that, that, that the supernatural world is present in this play. And you can interpret that in multiple levels. Some people interpret that purely psychologically, that there, you know, there are no real dark spirits, uh, but instead it's kind of the the, the darkness of the human soul that has been released into incarnating itself in the world. Whereas, you know, others say there, there is just, there's, there's demons, there's a demonic haunted presence to this play, which I think is where you're comparing it to Beowulf, which kind of has that same thing. The colors of this play are black and red, right? Yeah. And, um, and so there's just this, uh, this, uh, infertility, this barrenness, and this uh, the existential void haunted by evil spirits everywhere. So if you trace those uh, threads of the supernatural uh, throughout this play, they have a, a much stronger presence than any of the other tragedies by far. Mm. Mm. Could I, I want to capitalize on that and say that there's an actual scene, if you ever see a you know, uh, a performance of Macbeth either live on stage or in, um, you know, a movie version. There's a scene in which, I don't want to ruin it if people are getting accustomed to it for the first time, in which someone that, that Macbeth has killed returns. Well, I'm just going to say it. Everybody yeah, just dis- say it. It's fine. But, um, Banquo, who kills his best friend, does Macbeth, 
And he believes himself to kind of be in the clear. There are no more obstacles to his reign because Banquo, he feared Banquo and he was afraid that Banquo was going to, you know, unseat him. Banquo returns to Macbeth's banquet table when he's throwing this big party for himself. And I think the director of the play that you, you know, that you could go see has to make a decision about whether or not Banquo is played by an actual, by the actual actor who has played him earlier in the play, or it's played by nothing but Macbeth responding to vacant air. Right. Because you can do it either way. And I think that the director is kind of opting for, if you have Banquo show up in real life, I think the director is kind of opting for, hey, these spirits are real. This right. haunted landscape is actually haunted. It's not just a psychological um, haunting from Macbeth. But I think if Benko doesn't show up, the director, I'm not, I'm not saying this is what the director truly believes, like, you know, that it's all just psychological. But I think it, if Benko doesn't show up and Macbeth plays that scene to a vacant space, it kind of internalizes all of the haunting that's going on in the play internalizes inside of Macbeth's own heart, soul, mind. Right. I think that's true. And it's worth noting to pay attention to the fact that there are no, there is no uh, corresponding spirits that represent light and goodness and the grace of God. Like this is just, um, Beatrice dark, doesn't show dark. up on stage. Exactly. This Beatrice is, of, of yes. the Divine Comedy. Yeah, that, it's true. Well, <laughs> and you the one from too much to do by nothing. Right. Well, and you right. mentioned Midsummer Night's Dream being another play that's uh, uh, beloved, uh, being performed in modern times. And Shakespeare plays go in and out of style depending on the era. And uh, Midsummer Night's Dream is often played which is all benevolent spirits right and here we have all infernal or demonic ones and so there's uh, in both of those worlds work uh, Mm -hmm. within the play Mm -hmm. but here you just have whether or not the spirits are real or whether they are psychological they're equally horrifying in this play yeah well do you think that just to be safe we should refer to this play on the podcast as the scottish play instead of calling it we're not actually on a stage. I'm pretty confident we're safe. If okay. we were on a, we were on a stage, I, you you would no longer be on the stage, right? <laughs> hey, before we dive in a little bit further, we, this is a question I have um, for every Shakespeare play. Um, I think that to some degree, every every play um, deserves a different approach regarding this question. And that question is: if you were teaching it, or reading it, or studying it, or whatever you're doing, performing it, to what extent? Would you do some introductory work on the backstory, the history, the the source material for the story? Um, we know that the source for this is the story of the real Macbeth, um, who overthrew a king named Duncan. I mean, this is a, you know you can read about it in Holland Shed's Chronicles, which is a contemporary of Shakespeare. It's a history volume contemporary of Shakespeare. Um, and then I've also read that some of the events are associated with things related to the gunpowder plot in the early 1600s. So he, he borrowed various things from 
you know, English history, Scottish history. And so Heidi, I'll turn to you first. When you're teaching this, mm-hmm. do, do you, do you think that there is value in spending time right off the bat talking about that source material or is that a distraction in your opinion? For this particular play, I think it's unnecessary and distracting. Um, the, the Scottish history is, is absolutely sublimated here to Shakespeare's creative vision. He is using historical characters to tell his own story. It's not historically accurate. Uh, and, and it's, it's unnecessary to the play. I think that there's, uh, some value in, again, unnecessary, but there might, it might be interesting to the students to know that he performed this for Scottish King, who is a descendant of Banquo. Um, and that, that I think adds a little bit of historical color, but it's not necessary in interpreting the play. In terms of understanding it? Yeah. Tim, what's your take on the the source material? I agree. I might even go a little bit farther than Heidi. Not that Heidi said this, but I think that introducing historical material, especially early in a class about Macbeth, shifts the students' focus from the story that we're about to experience to... How much does this correspond with, you know, like reality? It just shifts the questions for the students. Mm. And for me, the questions need to be about, and, and the, like, the imagination needs to be invoked toward the actual play rather than source material, the actual history. I think those are kind of like, those are some nice, um, those might be a little bit of like dessert once you've really gone through the text and hopefully the students have fallen in love with the play. Well, maybe then you go back and talk about the history, but I just think... Trivial trivial in the truest sense of that word. Say again, David? They're trivial in the truest sense of that word. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Right. Okay, well then we won't talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) I have a Um, feeling that we, we might just because we're like, especially me, I... I really like that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to nerd out on that stuff, but I have to remind myself, if if I was teaching this for the first time, my nerdy predilections are not going to help anybody fall in love with this play. Hmm. Hmm. They could be a distraction, as a matter of fact. Hmm. Well, speaking of distractions, I have questions about how this play starts. Yeah. Begins with a 12-line scene in Act 1. It's a scene with all 12 lines. There's three speakers. I mean, we get, we get the witches, of course. Um, and then in scene 2, we are, what? We're at the battlefield with Duncan, right? Duncan is mm-hmm. Macbeth there. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why does this play begin with the witches? <laughs> Tim, tell us about your <laughs> chuckle. Well, I'm just laughing because, um, gosh. Also, give us your best witch impersonation. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> I, I think that the play begins with the witches because, as Heidi has said, this is going to be a haunted play, and Shakespeare is going to let us know from the very beginning that, like, some sort of supernatural forces are absolutely infiltrating the play. And one of the questions we'll get to at the end is, are they 
actually exerting influence upon uh, Macbeth and Banquo, or is Macbeth taking what the witches say, this prophecy, and bending it to what his own ambition desires? Hmm. That's one of the questions of the play. And from a dramatic point of view, we get from the beginning, we we learn that we're about to meet a character and this character is, wait, how, actually, yeah, we, we know that we're going to meet Macbeth and Macbeth is of great importance in like the supernatural economy of this play. Side note, <laughs> Macbeth shows up really late in this play. I mean, it's for, we hear talk about him, talk about him, talk about him. Gosh, for how many scenes? One, two, three. He, he enters in scene he three. Midway three, three, right? Yep. So we know a lot about what a like great military, you know, general this guy is, how brave he is. Um so we hear a lot about him before he shows up, which is a lovely piece of stagecraft by Shakespeare. Cause we get all of the positive things about him. We get him poised for absolute, um, not just victory in battle, but victory in like a social political sense. He is on the rise. Nothing can stop this guy. So we think, mm-hmm. Why do you, well, we'll stick with this. I'll let Heidi talk about the witches and then we'll, I want to go into this, how late Macbeth gets into it. But Heidi, do you want to add anything on the witches? I mean, on the, on the I mean, are, are the witches here um, chorus-like? Huh. They feel chorus-like at the beginning. Uh-huh. You know, if I was just reading scene one, scene one there, they kind of seem to present some kind of thematic question or tension, and then they go away. But then in scene three, they seem to be on the stage with Macbeth, and so he seems to be sort of playing with with um, a chorus um, in in uh, in you know ancient drama. Um, so I'm wondering, is right. that what their role is here, or is or what's going on? I think that I think that that's true. I think they do play a chorus-like role, but again, as we know right away, there's three of them and they're witches, and so what we're seeing is an inversion or reversal of the Holy Trinity right from the beginning. You've got three malevolent spirits who are plotting something and saying just flat out in line ten: "Fair is foul, and foul is fair." This is how the play opens. So this is so clear that this is going to be a play about the influences of darkness upon the material world. Uh, and and it, so it sets, in, it sets the scene just beautifully. You don't have the triumphal entry that you have in scene two. Uh, and, and you have these malevolent spirits who are plotting something. I think that's really important. I think as Tim says, that is Shakespeare at his very best. Um, and then I think that, hold on. Oh, I wanted to point out, uh, the witch's poetry here as well. Yeah. That was my next question. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Uh, so the witches in Macbeth have this very rhythmic sing-song uh, 
iambic kind of poetry uh, that is um, the very orderly language with very disturbing content. That's why we all know, you know, oil, boil, toil, and trouble, fire, burn, and cauldron bubble. You just have to hear that once and it's in your brain forever. Yeah. That, but the content of what they're saying is so disordered. And that, again, that's just another inversion that Shakespeare does here right off the bat. Yeah, it sounds like a children's nursery rhyme. Yes. But then it's not. <laughs> yes. Foul is fair, fair is foul. Yeah. There's something fairy ish about these witches too. Exactly. Yeah. Very folk and fairy. Yeah. Very German. I, I think that the, um, the allusion to a uh, chorus is insightful in, mm-hmm. in the Greek chorus. Oftentimes it's, it's sometimes a little hard, especially for students the first time that they read Antigone or Oedipus Rex to kind of get what exactly the chorus is. And I think it's because the chorus can change sometimes from, you know, in this Greek tragedy, it plays this role. In this Greek tragedy, it plays that role. But I think generally speaking, the chorus is sort of the voice of the accumulated wisdom of the society. And it's also the repository for history. So um, in Agamemnon, for example, we get a ton of backstory about Agamemnon's you know, what, why he left his city-state and what has happened, you know, before, just before he returned, what has happened to him. And that's all delivered by the chorus. It's the repository of history. But also, I think for the sake of Macbeth, the juxtaposition of the chorus and the three witches is interesting because chorus in Greek tragedy tends to be kind of, um, it's cons- lowercase c, conservative. It's, mm-hmm. It preserves what has been found of value. It's, it's, it's oftentimes, although it sometimes is not very, it's not always knowledgeable, it still is a voice, for the most part, of wisdom. And now our three witches are going to come in and they're hell raisers. I mean, like so, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Do you mean that the chorus, I mean, would it be fair to say that the chorus in the Greek plays is a, um, it's about order? I think it is. I think yes. it is about order. And, and here the witches they are, are the ones providing are, disorder. Mm-hmm. The witches are providing disorder. And in the Greek chorus, they're the voices of order and they are telling the tale of a moment of disorder, let's say Oedipus Rex, with this desire to figure out how do we return to order or how do we return to some sort of harmony. Mm-hmm. Again, the chorus, the old Greek choruses don't know everything. They're kind of going on this journey of discovery to figure out what has gone wrong in Thebes such that Oedipus needs to kind of like retell his tale of what has been done. So it's not that they know everything, but they at least know something is not right, that the order of things is fractured and it's causing harm to the city-state. Man, now the, the, the witches are bringing disorder but in a strange way their prophecy is going to prove exactly true everything that they say in their prophecies is going to be true hmm. so it's this really weird like um disturbing role that they play that they seem hmm. to be of 
like have this demonic power of disruption. And yet they also are like the fates almost. Mm-hmm. What they do decree or what they see will come to pass. It really will come to pass. Right. Hmm. So do you, is it meant to be, I mean, from a structural perspective, is that, is there prophecies meant to be sort of a unraveling of the threads of the mystery for us as not, I mean, not, we kind of, we kind of know what the mystery is. We kind of know what the plan of, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth is, but is that meant to be sort of a foreshadowing in terms of unraveling of the, the plot and all those elements? Is that what those prophecies are meant to be? Or are they meant to add to the mystery, do you think? Because you sure. say they come true, but w- which one is it? I mean, is it is the are the prophecies meant to be something where we turn to them for um, a clear understanding of what's going on, or is it meant to create dissonance in our understanding of the story? What do you think of that, Heidi? Sure. That I mean, I, I think you're putting your finger on one of the 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 discussions of the centuries about this play is who are these witches? Uh, as Tim mentioned, there's the question of agency, right? Do they make their prophecies come true? Uh-huh. Do they exert some kind of power over Macbeth and over the land of Scotland uh, in order to to accomplish their uh, their prophecy? Or or do they just do they are they simply namers? Right. Do they come and do they tell Macbeth, are they mirrors into Macbeth's already disordered soul so that then he acts upon his own desire by his own agency with no intervention from beyond the material world? And all they were were just crazy ladies on the heath making some kind of statement, right? So within the world of the play, it's very hard to make the case that the witches are not supernatural. Um, mm-hmm. So that they really, they are supernatural beings within the play. The question of the play is really, do they have some kind of power or are they merely uncovering what's already there and everyone's responsible for themselves? Has anybody ever uh, suggested or performed it such that the witches are purely in Macbeth's head? I've yes. never seen a- like that. It's a multiple personality situation or yeah. some kind of deep psychological thing. They have, that has been done. It has been done. I think the biggest obstacle to that is actually the scene that we're talking about, that they seem to have existence completely. Before we even know Macbeth, they exist. If Macbeth was like looming in the background in act one, scene one, then you can make, it would be easier to make a strong case that Macbeth is a man. Imagine this whole thing. His ambition is just conjuring up this desire. Yeah, that's where interpretation gets fun, right? Like you, you, yes, right, you, you right. Don't play with it, even if you know, because the fact that he's not on the stage, if it's still in his head, actually, in some right. ways, I mean, it's certainly. Well, a there are there are also other characters that see the witches, and that's important. So, again, yeah. within the world of the play, you'd have to leave lines out. You'd have to remove Banquo from scene three and Absolutely. have to not see the witches. There's, there's. You know, Shakespeare, just like he does, let's say, in in scene one of Hamlet, if you compare the two plays, in scene one of Hamlet is super important, even though Hamlet isn't in it, because that's the scene that establishes that the ghost is real, because other characters see the ghost. 
Whereas here in, in Macbeth, right. the question of whether or not Banquo is real is always up to interpretation, always will be, because nobody within the play sees Banquo's ghost except for Macbeth. But other characters do see the witches. So we're, I think that Shakespeare intends, you can interpret it differently. The play is now belongs to posterity, not Shakespeare. He's gone. So you can take, you can make, you can make it a multiple personality kind of thing. And I think that that would work, but that's not how the play is written. Right. Right. I, I think we should go on a little side tour here. I know that we have talked about this before, but I think one of the things that Circe is so good is that it prizes authorial intent. You know, when we're reading a difficult book, when we're reading the Bible, trying to understand what the author intended us to understand is like preeminent. With Shakespeare, um, I think that same rule ought to be applied. However, I think the history of performance of Shakespeare, it's become, Shakespeare's become such a traditional figure that his, and his plays are so long and so beautiful and so poetic that what they've kind of become is a sort of partially finished painting. Most of the figure work is done. Most of the color work is done. But a director, when a director comes and says, oh, I want to try a Macbeth where the supernatural is all inside Macbeth's head, then the director and the cast can take liberties. I think because they're, they're taking liberties with a pre-existent tradition. And so they can say... Let's say I'm the director and I want to imp- I want to have all of the um, supernatural action in Macbeth's head. I can cut some lines and I can put Macbeth in that opening scene. He has no lines, but he's on the heath. He sees the um, witches and we tell the audience all of this supernatural action is actually psychological action. So I think, and I think that is a legitimate way to do Shakespeare. There comes breaking points. There's, there's places where you would so strain the text that you actually snap out of any sort of like intention that Shakespeare had. And I think you, like 99 times out of 100, it's going to fail if you do that. But I still think that like, I think for listeners, it might be a, it feel a little bit weird to be suggesting that, sh- that this is a legitimate way to perform Shakespeare. And I think it's because Shakespeare is more than just that bard author from Elizabethan England. He's also, and I'm just kind of saying what Heidi's already said, he's public. He's such a public tradition for English speakers, especially, that artists feel the liberty to take liberty. Mm. Right. I think that that, if it wasn't for scene three, that, that uh, act one, scene three, that uh, interpretation that you, you two are describing is really interesting, but it is central to the conflict between Macbeth and Banquo that Banquo saw the witches and heard the prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think you'd you have could, to do something with that scene. You'd have to. And yeah, if sure. you remove Banquo from that scene, you, you don't have the pathos within their friendship because he's heard the prophecy and he's kind of waiting 
aunt for Macbeth to turn on him. Uh-huh. But what if it's like Fight Club and Banquo right. is just the other Macbeth? <laughs> then they're all <laughs> said. They're uh, um no. That I think I'm onto something here. No, because then he kills himself. Something, but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, do you want to, should we look at that scene then? Yeah. Okay. So scene three. So the witches are there talking. Um, we can't read every line in this play. Alas. Alas, um, indeed. So then let's look at when enter. So this is act one, scene three. And the, the third witch says a drum, a drum Macbeth doth come. <laughs> and then, um, the the all the witches say the weird sisters hand in hand posters of the sea and land thus do go about about thrice to thine and thrice to mine and thrice again to make up a nine peace the charms wound up enter Macbeth and Banquo so, and what's Macbeth's first line go ahead well I was gonna say so <laughs> yes. why don't you play Macbeth and then Tim you play Banquo um, and then eh, we'll figure out the witches as we go along or something okay sounds good. So foul and fair a day I have not seen. How far is it to forests? What are these? So withered and so wild in their attire. They look not like the inhabitants of the earth, and yet they are on it. Live you, or are you aught that I may that a man may question? You seem to understand me, but each at once her choppy fingers laying upon her skinny lips. You sh- should be women, and yet your beards forbid me to interpret that you are so. Speak, if you can. What are you? Yeah, we need like six people on this episode. No, we? you just be the witches, David. <laughs> so they all say the same thing, no, right? So the first No, says, they okay. don't. They all hail Macbeth, hail to the Thane of Glamis. Second witch says, all hail Macbeth, hail to the Thane of Cawdor. And the third witch says, all hail Macbeth, thou shalt be king hereafter. Right? That- yep. Banquo. Good sir, why do you start and seem to fear things that do go, that do sound so fair? In the name of truth, are you fantastical, or that indeed which outwardly you show? My noble partner you greet with present grace and great prediction of having, of noble having and of royal hope, that he seems wrapped withal. To me, you speak not. If you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not, Speak then to me, who neither beg nor fear your favors nor your hate. And then all three witches say, hail. And then the first witch says, uh, it's hard to play three parts when no one else is looking at the words. Um, except you two. <laughs> then the first witch says, lesser than Macbeth and greater. And the second witch says, not so happy, yet much happier. And the third witch says, Thou shalt get kings, though thou be none. So all hail Macbeth and Banquo. And the first wish says, Banquo and Macbeth, all hail. I just want to stop and talk about every single line. But Go instead, for it. yeah. So yeah that, we can. I mean, that whole, that everything just changed. Like the whole world just changed with those predictions mm-hmm. for, for these characters. That's. They came in. So if you go back to the first, which is to the first prophecy. Mm -hmm. Thou shalt be um, king. Yep. Or all hail Macbeth, hail to the Thane of Gloms. That's who he is. He's already the Thane of Gloms. So this witch has established uh, 
believability, right? She knows she's believable because that's actually true about Macbeth. So now they think probably, oh, they know something. The second witch says, all hail Macbeth, hail to thee, Thane of Cawdor. He's not the Thane of Cawdor, but as we're about to discover in the next scene, the Thane of Cawdor has indeed been killed because he was plotting against the king. That's the battle that Macbeth and Banquo were just in when Macbeth was the hero. They, they find out, and while all this is happening with the witches, behind their backs off stage, the Thane of Cawdor has been caught and executed, and King Duncan, in the next scene, sends messengers to give Macbeth this honor. So shortly, he's about to discover that he is to be the Thane of Cawdor. And then the next prophecy, the prophecy that causes all the trouble, all hail Macbeth, that shall be king hereafter. And I think, Heidi, we actually, we've already gotten a, we already know that he is going to be pronounced Thane of Right, we know that, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't, right. Mm. So, Ben, what do you make of Banquo's response to um, thou shalt be king hereafter? He says, why do you start? You know, why, why are you acting this way? But then he says, my noble partner, you greet with present grace and great prediction of noble... Ha- Sorry, I lost track of where the line was. Right. Um, well, why are you finding that? Yes. So, so my, my question is, why, what do you make of Banquo's response? Right. So I, I really am going to stop talking about it. See, you, you get, hear the excitement in voice. I love this play. I'm sure Tim's dying to say something here too. But what Banquo says here, his response, good sir, he's, he's saying it to Macbeth. Why do you start and seem to fear things that do sound so fair? Now, we already have talked about, this isn't clear in the play yet, but we've been saying this. I've been preaching this, like that the whole play is about foul and fair being reversed. So it's Banquo here that's the first to say, this sounds so fair. Why do you act why are you why are you acting like this is an embedded stage direction? Shakespeare doesn't give a lot of stage directions. So you look for them within the dialogue of the play. So we know that Macbeth is here is supposed to start and seem freaked out by this prophecy. And that Banquo says, Hey, friend. Why are you start and seem to fear things that do sound so fair? So as we go on the play, we get to see that this thing that sounds so fair is actually foul. Mm-hmm. So we have an indication of the future reversals even here. Also, the fact that Banquo, well, the prediction is about Macbeth. Right. Um. And what is Macbeth's response to what should be really great news? You know, like he is about to receive another title and he shall be king hereafter. And his response is to start. Okay, so that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It might just be, I mean, if if someone pronounced, Heidi, you're going to be queen starting tomorrow, you might kind of like jolt. But it's interesting that Banquo, when he gets his own good news, it does not seem that he responds in a in that same way. Mm-hmm. He and, and so what I think we're seeing is wor- Macbeth is from the very beginning worried about what this means for his own person. 
um, he's he's anxious about what this is going to like invoke in him and bring out of him. But for Banquo, Banquo does not even just does not seem to be bothered. He seems almost despite the fact that he's seeing three supernatural creatures, almost a little bit amused. Right. Yeah, that's true. Which, again, shows there's something in Macbeth that feels the weight of this right away. Yes, right. And then, as I don't know how you played Macbeth when you did it, but there's multiple ways to interpret this. Is this when the wheels start turning? Is right. this when he's like, whoa, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and you come over here and name it for me? Or is right. he honestly like a bit disturbed because he's still loyal to Duncan? Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. that's... There's lots of ways to interpret his own response in this scene. How did you play him here? I think he, the moment that he hears it, his ambition is triggered. I don't think he has to wait. I mean, some people make the case that he's kind of an innocent character, but he's kind of bullied into it by Lady Macbeth, which we'll start to see at the end of this act. I don't find that. I don't find that plausible. He is an active character. And from the moment that he shows up with Lady Macbeth, they're thinking the same thing. They're thinking the exact same thing, which means I think maybe not by the very, very beginning, maybe not when he actually starts and, you know, hears the prophecy, is that like dark ambition activated? Boy, but I think very, very soon thereafter. Even if it's not in this moment, it's very soon thereafter i think it's when coddle he finds out it's i was wrong it's not the next scene it's in this very scene that he's given the um that he's elevated he gives the, he receives the title yeah when he receives yeah. the title of thane and i i wonder if it's in that moment when because he, he sees like the power that the witches have oh my gosh well I, but he, and because he had he just says there he says stay you imperfect speakers tell me more by Sinel's death, I know I am Thane of Glamis, but how of Cawdor? The Thane of Cawdor lives, a prosperous gentleman. And to be king stands not within the prospect of belief, no more than to be Cawdor. Exactly. So then as soon as he hears, you know, the Cawdor thing is true, uh-huh. then it's like, uh-huh. logically, it's like, I had, he had just said, well, just as I'm never going to be Thane of Cawdor, I'm never going to be king. But once the Thane of Cawdor thing becomes possible, it opens up the whole, it opens up the possibility of of, of everything. But... My question, I have this question about that line, stay you imperfect speakers, tell me more. Because he had just said at the beginning there, his, what is his second line says, can. And then he calls them imperfect speakers. Uh huh. So why does he call them imperfect speakers there? Oh, that's such, that's just a good question. That's an objectively good question, even though I do often say that. (laughs) But he seems to be, you know, he says, speak if you can. And then his next line is, to call them imperfect speakers, Banquo talks first. Banquo responds to them. And he seems sort of, Macbeth seems unable to speak for a second. Banquo uh-huh. kind of calls, suggests that. So then he stay, you imperfect speakers, tell me more. I mean, he doesn't just say stay, tell me more. He calls them imperfect speakers. Uh-huh. So what, is that, what does that mean? What, is, what does that tell us about Macbeth, the moment, the scene? What's Shakespeare doing there with, that, with that, those three lines? You imperfect speakers. I, I think the imperfect can refer either to the actual physical form of the witches, or I think more likely 
you speakers whose words have not come yet to completion. That's how I would read it. But I think it could be gone. I think you could go either way. Hmm. Hmm. Well, and there is a fragmentary nature to language in this play that um, just as there is really in, in every Shakespeare play, there's kind of a meditation on the, the capacities, the possibilities of language. What can language actually do in the world? When you speak, what, what is accomplished by that? Are you merely expressing your own inner life or are you doing something in, in the natural, physical, material world? Does it produce something? And, and, and that is particularly true in this play with the prophecies of the witches. They're kind of that the embodiment of that. So I think mm-hmm. that there's something that he is saying that's really important to some of those underlying contemplations that we get in Macbeth. Hmm. Do you think it has anything to do with grammar? In what like, way? As in the imperfect tense, the idea of something kind of being in progress but not completed? Maybe. Even if, even if it's a play on... Even maybe Macbeth doesn't mean it that way. Maybe he means it in terms... Mm-hmm. You know, but but the interesting thing is, so so maybe Shakespeare's got a little play on words there for us, but then also, um, although I wonder if that's a chicken and egg thing. <laughs> well, I maybe was that's just where the wondering if if that the, was yeah the same, like if if we would have used. I, I don't know the develop in the development of the study of grammar when people started calling it the imperfect tense. Maybe it became from Macbeth. I, I don't know, but you yeah. know, it, I mean, if it's interesting that he calls it imperfect because I mean, imperfect is like the idea of something being flawed, right? Yes. Like, so is he saying, Tim, you mentioned the concept of maybe there it's incomplete. It hasn't been fulfilled yet, but he right. seems, there seems to be this, this question in him about, and how do you mention the, so the, I guess the question is, is he talking about the words or is he talking about the speakers themselves, the people? Right. Right, and you kind of have both jumped on two different angles of that, which is, of course, that's classic Shakespeare. Classic Shakespeare. (laughs) If you're gonna, if you're gonna use it, I mean, if you're gonna follow the strict logic of grammar, it imperfect modifies the speakers. But we know, both know, like we all know, it's is Shakespeare's just not that simple. He's like always messing around. Uh, but I'm fascinated by e- in either case. He's it's either you know what you're saying is faulty, or you as a person are faulty. But uh-huh. despite that, he immediately is like, "Tell me more." Like I, yeah. it seems to be in, this seems to be one of those moments where in that one line we have the inner life of Macbeth sort of like being totally. all mixed up because Absolutely. there's the sense of you. There's something imperfect about you, but I need you to tell me more. You know, right. there's this sense of like it's it's temptation at work in that one moment almost. Like you right. know, and can I push this forward a little bit? Sorry, David. Well, no, I was just going to say there's this, there's this thing where there's the, you recognize the flaw in the thing, but you can't resist it. And uh-huh. in that one line, it seems like that's being, all that's happening inside his head. What were you going to say? Right. Look at Banquo's response. So if, if Macbeth wants to know more, he's like intrigued. Please go on about how great I'm going to be. So Banquo, <laughs> so for me, it's lines, um, gosh, beginning with 130. No, sorry, earlier. Uh, begin with 121. Banquo says to Macbeth, oh my gosh, you know, like this thing has come true. You're now a thane of Cordor. Oh my gosh. But then Banquo gives a warning. 
instead of like celebrating that the witches have made this prophecy that's come true, he now is on guard as opposed to Macbeth. Macbeth wanted it to be true. Now Banquo is saying the opposite. Might there yield, um, that trusted home might yet enkindle you unto the crown besides the Thane of Corndor, meaning um, you were just named Thane of Corndor, you might also become king. But tis strange, and oftentimes to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness tell us truths, win us with honest trifles to betrays in deepest consequence. So he's got, Banquo has his guard up. These witches might be telling him something that they want to, that Macbeth and Banquo want to hear. And that should be reason, says Banquo, for us to be on our guard. They might be trying to mm-hmm. exert like some, you know, dark purpose for us. So he's saying, be self-aware. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, right. Be aware of your own proclivities, your own desires. Right. So you can resist what you need to resist if necessary. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> he's kind of trying to unravel early on what seems to be raveling, so to speak, in Macbeth. Uh-huh. Right. But then Macbeth says two truths are told. Yes. This mm-hmm. is a soliloquy. So this is mm-hmm. the real Macbeth. Why don't this you read that, Heidi? Speech. Okay. Two truths are told as happy prologues to the swelling act of the imperial theme. I thank you, gentlemen. This supernatural soliciting cannot be ill, cannot be good. If ill, why hath it given me earnest of success commencing in a truth? I am Thane of Cawdor. If good, why do I yield to that suggestion whose horrid image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. My thought, whose murder yet is but fantastical, shakes so my single state of man that function is smothered in surmise and nothing is but what is not. He's musing on can could this be good? Because here's some reasons why this could only be good. Here's some reasons why it could only be bad. And those reasons are all inside his head. They have stirred up his imagination to darkness already. And Banquo points out, you know, to the audience at least, that there is something mysterious that he's been uh, intoxicated or or um, mm-hmm. there's like a, a spell on him. He, look how our partner is wrapped. He seems to be identifying right away. This is this is not this is unusual. This isn't normal, right? Yes. No, I love, oh, and he says that. Go a ahead. soliloquy that's broken up by another character on stage is fascinating. It uh-huh. is because neither of them are talking to each other. Right. Right. There's already it, a distance. Right. Macbeth is already creating a physical and a and a ling and a linguistic distance from his community. Mm-hmm. Through this, Tim, if you were staging this, would you have Macbeth walk away from Banquo to to kind of mirror I, that? Uh, I think I actually think no, because there'll be plenty of opportunities from him for him to walk away, like on the stage, for him to walk away from Banquo in the future. I think at this point, and I think we get a little stage direction. Um, no, I won't say that. I would have Macbeth stay and Banquo leave 
Okay. Because huh. I think that Macbeth at this point resolves to do mm-hmm. the right thing. So continuing mm-hmm. on, after Banquo says, look how our partners rap, Macbeth still as an aside. If chance would have me king, why? Chance may crown me without my stir, right? So I don't have to do anything here. I'm not going to murder the king. Don't be crazy. Let's just let this play out. So he continues, come what may, time and the hour runs through the roughest day. No big deal, right? I'm going to do the right thing. I'm not going like, to even think about harming Duncan. Um, so for me, movement shows change. I'm mean, just as a staging direction. And standing shows um, solidity. He's going to stay focused. And there are going to be so many opportunities where we get to see more of Macbeth arguing with himself and thus moving. So for this, I'd have Banquo move. Hmm. I'm fascinated by the way Macbeth kind of recovers there for a second. Like if, if chance will have me king, why chance may crown me without me doing anything? But then, um, does that how the scene is that how the scene ends? Do you think Heidi? I mean, is he, he going? He's going back and forth here already, right away. Do, at the end of this scene, where is his mental state, in your opinion? Um, I I think fairly settled at that point. I don't see evidence in the next lines that he's made another change. But I think that's still working in his own. One, one thing I find really interesting about that line that you said was fascinating, and I agree with you, is that it he doesn't say the obvious support of that statement, which is, I became the Thane of Cawdor without lifting a finger. Right? And mm. so, mm. therefore the same thing will happen with the kingship. So, you know, so I think that he's, he is trying to resolve to do the right thing, but I think as Tim's pointing out, there's, there's, he's, he still isn't giving the full weight to that argument. So at least out loud, that would be the next thing I would say, right? Like that is, yeah, my chance might crown me king without my sir, because I, became the Thane of Cawdor without doing anything. So, of course, the kingship will come to me, right? So, anyway, hmm. I, I think he ends the scene kind of with that same resolve. But he hmm. also writes a letter to his wife mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. And we need to probably look yes, at that here in Act on 1 because we don't yeah. have a lot of time left. So, that is in Act 5. one five. Mm-hmm. So she gets. So he sends her a letter. He explains the prophecies. The king is going to their house. Mm-hmm. Uh, king Duncan is going to their house, which is what happened in Act Four. It's a short act, or excuse me, scene. I do that all the time. That's <laughs> what I've been seen for. It's just a short act, a scene that tells us <laughs> that um, Duncan is going to go visit Macbeth. There are no short Act Fours in Shakespeare. Right? There are no um, short Act Fours. Okay, so and Inverness is their castle, so they arrive there, and then Macbeth and um, is it four when they talk for the, no? In six no. they start talking, right? Yeah. So so he, they Macbeth gets there. Let's move on to six then, because that's I think uh, probably where our focus needs to be. Is sure. Oh, David, Devin, I, I want to talk about. The lady I don't think speech. we should skip. Yeah, I think we shouldn't skip five. I. 
a proposal. What if we finish one five and we pick up next week at one six? Okay, we can do that. I just think that this is a one five is our first glimpse of Lady Macbeth. Um, and one of the greatest characters in all of greatest female characters, maybe characters ever in Shakespeare. All right, let's do that then. Let's do, let's finish here with one five and then next week we'll pick up with, with one six. And if we need to, you know, strike, we won't have as much of that kind of high level discussion at the beginning, but let's, yeah, let's, let's dive into one six then or one, one five then. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah. What we, you, Um, you have thoughts clearly. I do. I, I think it's so fascinating that Lady Macbeth opens this scene reading a letter from Macbeth and he recounts this um, speech to her that the three sisters have given him. So, gosh, it sounds like they're prophesying that I'm going to become king. He hardly mentions any sort of intention to take the crown through ill means. But Lady Macbeth from the go is ready to hack the king when he comes under her roof. Like she's ready to go. It hardly even needs to be mentioned from Macbeth. And so when Macbeth arrives, she's already kind of, um, she is presuming that they are in this together and they are going to take down the king and he is going to become king himself. So um, some of the highlights. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, first, the dearest partner in greatness little phrase. I think that's yeah. important to note. We have with the Macbeths an actual happy marriage, a, 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 a unity and uh, a shared vision and they are in every way equals to one another intellectually and um, with a, the capacity for strength. Yes. Yes. Hmm. But she um, fears She fears his nature. Yet I do fear. So may I read that and just make a comment about womanhood and femininity in this play? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Dive in. Um, all right. I'm in line 13. Gloms thou art and Cador. And so she's read the letter. She knows about the prophecies, uh, which is remarkable in a medieval marriage, by the way, that he's confiding that kind of thing in his wife. Mm. Uh, Gloms thou art and Cador and shalt be what thou art promised. Yet do I fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. Thou wouldst be great, art not without ambition, but without the illness should attend it. What thou wouldst highly, thou wouldst thou holily, wouldst not play false, and yet wouldst wrongly win. Thou have great gloms, that which cries, thus thou must do if thou have it. And that which rather thou dost fear to do than wishest should be undone. That's a complicated speech, but but what she is saying here is yeah, it's nonsense. You have to take what, and again, this goes to language here. Mm. 
right? Like that, and it's a very seesaw rhythm and it's disjointed. And what she's saying is if you want something, you have to take it. And I'm afraid he's too soft and he needs, uh-huh. right? He needs me to motivate him. So, which is an interesting thing to say about a warrior who has done nothing but gain glory in battle and become the right hand man of the king, right hand man of the king. But she's saying he's too honorable, right? Which again, according to the biblical model of womanhood, that's the job of the woman is to instill and solidify the virtue in her man. That's the medieval understanding of femininity. And, and um, but instead, she's saying. He's weak. It's my job. I have to make this man strong in order to take what is his. And then she gives this great speech several lines later. And I think, Tim, you should read that one about the make thick my blood. Take oh, my yeah. Gall. yeah. I want to read that. I also, I, can I just read three brief lines? Yeah. To like talk about her vision of motherhood. So one of them is the line that you read, Heidi. What thou art promised, uh, yet I do fears, too full of the milk of human kindness. Now, skidding down, um, she is summoning like oh. some dark spirit in her next major speak speech. Make thick my blood. Stop up the access and passage to remorse that no compunctious visitings of nature shake my fell purpose, nor keep peace between the effect and it. Here it is. Come to my womanly breasts and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers. Now, forward one more time to... Sorry, I'm cutting into what I said we weren't going to do, David. But um, So one, seven, Macbeth is out reasoning with himself. (laughs) Oh, I can't read that one yet? We'll do it again next week. (laughs) It's so good. I'm not going to read the whole speech, but just... She's trying to talk Macbeth into like, come on, let's do the deed. And she says, um, I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the, love the babe that milks me. But this is what I would do for you, she says. And I will, let, I will save that till next week. Because it's like, it's the most murderous speech in the English language. It's it most, is the well, most murderous. No, now so you incredibly it. awful. You, you skipped. You, now you have to do it. So I changed my mind. Now you have to say it. <laughs> it's easier to hear it coming from a guy, maybe. Nor, or, okay. Go ahead. Macbeth says he's not going to do it. Lady Macbeth responds, What beast was it then that made you break this enterprise to me? When you durst do it, then you were a man. And to be so much more than what you were, you would be so much more the man nor time nor place, did then adhere, and yet you would make both. They have made themselves, and that their fitness now does unmake you. I have given suck, and know how tender tis to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out had I so sworn to you as... as had I so sworn as you have done to this. Right. It's hotness. Wow. You skipped a bit there in five where she says, 
she calls on the spirits. She says, come you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here and fill me from the crown to the toe top full of direst cruelty, make thick my blood. And I think that, you know, there's another inversion, right? Because with the milking, it's about the, you know, I mean, there's obviously a filling up and then the coming out and you're giving of yourself to the child and all that kind of stuff. But here she's saying like the inverse, she's saying, fill, fill me up. She fill me with, with cruelty. And then that's, Uh I think that those lines kind of feed into the lines you're reading there about like, you know, about giving up, you know, the, um, the, uh, duty of motherhood you know like right. uh-huh. she she, right. she kind of rejects those duties those those things that nab that are natural to that role uh, uh-huh. to that position and she kind of like she does in terms of being um queen i guess as well if you're looking at it from that medieval perspective but um she there's like this inversion where it's all she starts saying she instead of saying instead of being um valuing the emptying she starts being asked by the spirits to be filled up with evil and then that right. ultimately leads to the evil thoughts that she says there in seven like I, I think there's a case to be made that there's a cause and effect going on there yes like she Absolutely. acts the way she does because she asks to be given the ability to act the way she does she calls uh-huh. upon supernatural dark spirits and they nourish each other she's saying take the milk in my breasts for gall take it and you be nourished and then you unsex me make me more of a man than my husband and so there's the inversion of the the role of mother and child and of husband and wife and of femininity and masculinity and of subject and King. All of it is all dependent on Lady Macbeth. And here in this scene, again, just one more thing um, in the speech I read, hie thee hither that I may pour my spirits in thine ear and chastise with the valor of my tongue, all that impedes thee from the golden round, which fate and metaphysical aid doth seem to have thee crowned withal. Now, interesting word about that word, interesting thing about that word spirits can mean a couple of things. It can mean uh, this actual demonic spirits. And in medieval language, that could also mean seed or semen. So what she's, she's talking about almost like a reverse impregnation. I'm going to impregnate you, Macbeth, with evil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my job here. And there's that reversal again. And then so, she asks to be filled up with evil by the witch. Exactly. Witches. So that then she can nourish him with her breasts. And, and, and it's a very erotic, like a darkly erotic image here. But then she, and then she specifically says below line, line 41, stop up the access and passage to remorse. Yes. That no compunctious visit, visitings of nature shake my fell purpose, nor keep peace between the effect and it. And, right. and, like there's so much there's so much conversational flowing here and mm-hmm. uh, and then she says stop it up though stop up my access to remorse fill me with evil and don't let me feel guilty about it right yes that's yes so this this these three speeches from lady macbeth that we all, that we just read have all of the inversions of the play embedded within them all of them hmm. and then we see them play out through the rest of the time well, <laughs> we should probably. <laughs> oh, that, it's like 
I mean, I love this it's place. better than any contemporary horror movie. It I mean, it's is. just so much more dr- like dramatic and dark and like, you know, like chainsaws are not as scary as Lady Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> Scene True. two, act two only has four scenes. A couple of them are, are a little shorter. So we'll pick up at scene, act, act one, scene six on the next episode. Yeah, but that's I mean, we've been going an hour and a half now, so we should probably wrap this up. But final thoughts from either of you before we do so and then go on to one six next week. Tim, final thoughts? The, the kind of traditional staging for act one, scene five, upon Macbeth's entrance is, that is a very hide the women and kids, or excuse me, hide the children. Um, it's typically paid, played very erotically mm-hmm. for a couple of different reasons. One, just the obvious reason, Macbeth, the soldier, presumably gone for months, maybe years, is finally home to his wife. Right, that's the obvious reason. Like they're going to like be full of desire for each other. But the other one, Heidi said this is like the kind of like erotic nature and the kind of like sexual nature of Lady Macbeth, and she will accuse Macbeth himself of like being erroneous. It's so like activated, and the bond that they seem to form after this scene, or maybe even during this scene, seems so deep that it almost seems like a sort of like, like a physical union, you know? And so, of course, it would make sense to make Macbeth's entrance seeing his wife a very kind of like erotically loaded scene. Mm-hmm. Right. Heidi, final thoughts? Yes. Um, I, we can't respond to final thoughts. So I know, I know. <laughs> oh, it's so hard. Um, Yes, here's my final thought. Pay attention to how children are uh, talked about in this play. Uh, The idea of succession, which is always a source of anxiety for kings, uh, is, I mean, really hit on in in this play. Uh, One, we know that the witches have prophesied that Banquo's children will sit on the throne, but Macbeth will be the king. So that's already got to be triggering some anxiety in Macbeth. What mm-hmm. do I do? What comes after me? Am I going to, as we see this play on the rest of the play, am I going to damn myself by killing the king for what if I have no children? For what if nothing comes after me? Okay. So that's one thing. Then we also see in the, this is not a translated play. This is English. So when, when Lady Macbeth says, I have given suck, we know from the play they have no children, and yet she says, I have uh-huh. fed or nursed a baby. So it's very clear from the play that they have at some point lost a child. And I think that that it haunts the play. Mm-hmm. So I would watch that. And as we get more and more in, you get to see children, Macbeth killing children, Macbeth coming against children, children are a threat to Macbeth. This uh, they're ghost children and there's real children that die. And, 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 but the, the question of succession and children is, again, an inversion in which the children have the power over the parents and that inf- influences their actions. Hmm. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, uh, so yeah, we can't comment on final thoughts. That's kind of the rule of final thoughts. We don't we don't respond to them. They so, are final. 
I like that. <laughs> so I hope uh, everybody, uh, can I say, enjoys reading Macbeth? <laughs> <laughs> I am literally on the edge of my seat right now. I'm like leaning here at Heidi. I can hear it in your voice. So much. Yes. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, we will be back next week. We'll finish up Act One and we'll dive into Act Two. And then, of course, like I said, we'll answer questions towards the end after we do all five acts. So, if you have questions already, remember you can post them on the Facebook page, or you can post them on the Instagram page, or you can email them to us at closereadspods at closereadspodcasts at gmail dot com. Don't forget to sign up for the Close Reads Podcast email newsletter, which goes out uh, every several weeks, every few weeks when we start new books. You can subscribe for that at closereadspods.com. And don't forget about all the other great stuff here on the network. We are doing Little Britches over on the uh, Close Reads, the, the flagship show. We've got the Daily Poem. And we've got a bunch of new stuff that's coming down the pipeline here soon. So be on the lookout for that. And I just want to say, um, if you like what's going on here on the Close Reads Podcast Network, if you like the Daily Poem, if you like the Place of Thing, if you like Close Reads... Um, then please consider if you haven't already partnering with us over on our Patreon page. You can um, do that for as little as $2 a month. Um, and we've got some great swag and some new stuff coming. So be on the lookout for that. And you can just check that out at patreon.com slash closereads. Um, and that is about it for this week. So for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.